Why was Princeton, New Jersey, once the hottest spot on Earth? How long is a moment? There's an actual measurement. Yes, there is. We'll have the answer to that <laughs> and other questions coming up in this episode of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. So a moment, when I say, hey, give me a moment, there's an actual measurement of time yeah, related take a guess. to that. Take a guess. Well, I would say something like three, four seconds. Well, you'd be wrong. Okay, okay, ten, yeah. ten seconds. Wrong again. <laughs> okay, according to Science Focus... It's actually 90 seconds. 90 seconds? Yeah. I never think of that as a moment. No, me either. It seems like a long... That's an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> this was before uh, attention span deficit, I think. It was put into use by an 8th century monk named St. Bede the Venerable. Bede? How do you spell that? B-E-D-E. Betty, oh. Betty. Okay. Bede. Uh, Beady eyes, the venerable, who used the term to describe 90 seconds, and it's been that ever since in the science world. What did you say, the 9th or 8th century? No, 8th. Now, that was before clocks were invented, so how did they measure 90 seconds? Well, that's a good question. Hmm, maybe it was an hourglass or water measurement or something? Yes, that's probably how. Don't question my... I'm sorry, I'm, I question. apologize. Don't question my question. <laughs> okay, go ahead. What you got? Okay. Why was Princeton, New Jersey, once the hottest spot on Earth? You mean physically, weather-wise? Let me repeat the question, Mark. <laughs> Why was Princeton, New Jersey, once the hottest spot on Earth? Okay, I, I don't know. A volcano erupted there back, uh, back 10 million years before Jesus. I don't know. Well, you know, digging back, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> No, you can thank Princeton University. Now, people who live in Princeton know it has a pretty normal New Jersey climate, but scientists at the Tokamak Experimental Fusion Test Reactor at Princeton University produce temperatures hotter than the sun. The reactor was operated by the U.S. Department of Energy from 1982 to 1997, and it set several world's records, one for fusion power, 10.7 million watts in 1997. They're trying to come up with a way to create electricity commercially through fusion. That's okay. what they're trying to do. All right. But in the process of that, they also had their plasma temperature as high as 920 million degrees Fahrenheit in this machine in that's, the lab. That's a bit much. That is a bit much. <laughs> 34 times as hot as the center of the sun. So that's why you could say Princeton, New Jersey was once the hottest spot on Earth. Good to know. They've been doing stuff there since World War II. The Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, that's where you'll find that information on the web. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. Why, Bob, is yeah. a nude person said to be wearing a birthday suit? Well, I think the idea was that's what you look like when you were born. You know, your skin is your birthday suit. That's what I always thought. <sighs> so prosaic. So prosaic. Prosaic, I forget the definition of that word. It means dull. Oh, but you're right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it describes exactly what one is wearing on their day of birth. So uh, there you go. You got it right. Score one for the bobber. That's the question? That's a trivia question you brought to the table? Yeah. Okay, I got one. 
How did Mother Nature lead to the design of wingtip shoes? How did who? Mother Nature. Wingtip shoes?、Uh, I don't know. Is the Alan Edmonds study the flight of birds for、uh, 20 years or something? Well, you're right. Those holes is、yeah. designed like bird wings. You're right.、Yes. But no, right? No. Okay, what、no. is it? Well, actually, the holes in wingtip shoes were originally introduced in Scotland and Ireland in the fourth century in shoes. They were drilled in、you're、shoes、kidding. to allow water to drain <laughs> from waterlogged shoes of locals as they wandered through the sodden well, terrain. Well, it was it, ha- it had it had a sensible reason. It had a purpose. And now it's just fashion. That's just you for, got. Hey, you got holes in your for shoes guy, for guys in suits. All right, good. Then let's go to this. According to Forbes magazine, Bob, who are the highest-paid male and female actors as of 2020? Hmm. I always think of Tom Cruise as being the highest-paid actor. Yes. In Hollywood. Right, and you'd think wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Who's the new okay, king? All right.、Uh, we got a Johnson and a Johansson. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson. He comes in tops. The Rock, a, yeah, with a comfortable annual salary of eighty-seven point five million. Oh, I could take half of that and, and live off of it. How about you? He doesn't have to wait for his social security checks.、Jeez. And the female top of the pile is Scarlett Johansson. Her salary came in at fifty-six million. You notice she's still like a third less than him. Yeah,、so. that's a lot. So、different. aren't the actors always? Talking how liberal they are. Well, let's put your money the, where your mouth is. Get the、pal. pay up there for the ladies、yeah. if you could make eighty-seven、yeah. million、Although、just being Mister. Both are absurd.、But、well, of course. Anyway, that's the answer. Dwayne and Scarlett. All right. So those are the top two. Wow. All right. Now let's get back down to the ground, Marcia. All right. How did beetle grubs inspire the modern chainsaw? <laughs> <laughs> well, gee. Now the chainsaws are much, much more useful than eighty-seven million-dollar actors in just getting things done <laughs> just for、saying. regular people. Just you know. saying, they're not as fun, though. No, I guess not.、Uh, okay, I don't know, Bob. Well, you know, we always like those stories about how did they come up with that idea for this business or that business?、Uh-huh. You know, why didn't I think of that? Well, beetle grubs chew their way through a stump, and watching them do that led a logger to design a chain resembling their teeth. No kidding. That, that's like、uh, the Velcro guy. Yeah, it's an awful lot like that. The Velcro guy had the、uh, the cockleburrs stick to his yeah, pants. Yeah. So he looked them under a microscope. Yeah. Same kind of thing. So this guy in 1947, a logger and inventor, Joseph Buford Cox, he watched these timber worms. They're the larvae of timber beetles. Chomp their way through a tree stump and got an idea. He was fascinated by how quickly they could make their way through the wood. And he wondered why. So back home, he set up an experiment with some wood and a magnifying glass, and he watched these beetle grubs use their C-shaped teeth, C-shaped, to chisel the wood away by moving their jaws from side to side. That's what he saw, and he thought, "Hmm, wonder if I could develop a chain that would do that、yeah. side to side." So that's how it came about. Yeah, observation, and then he put it into good use, and that and became hopefully the s- he became wealthy. Well, he did. He he became wealthy. That became the standard of the logging industry. And today, nearly eighty years later, his patents have expired. All the major brands use that bug chain design. They call it the bug chain. And the company he launched, Omark's Oregon Saw Chain, is still the market leader in you know chainsaws、yes. for for lumberjacks. How heavy do you think the first chainsaw was? <laughs> How heavy was it? It was designed by Andreas Stihl, S-T-I-H-L. His name is on brands of things today. 
and the saws weighed 150 pounds and required a two-man crew. Wow. So th- this other guy came up with a better idea for a design. Wow. All right, Robert, how vain are you? Do you think the bobby pin was named after you? It was named <laughs> after me. And the bobby socks. <laughs> No, no, no. But uh, did, I, I don't know. How did they know. get their names? That's a good question because I know that the Bobbies, the London Bobbies, they think those were named after a, a, a police constable or yes, so named was. Robert. Correct. But I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's- Bobby uh, Pins. Uh, yes. And it's named after a haircut. Really? The Bob, a hairstyle popularized during the Roaring Twenties by the Flappers. Remember all those wonderful pictures of oh, Flappers yeah. and they have those- Darling little, uh, little haircuts. haircuts and straight bangs and all that. Yeah, that's the bob. And the pins they used to hold their hair in place were called the bobby pins. They must have called it a bobby, too, at some time instead of just a bob, right? Those hair that girls and their bobbies. I don't know. I never heard it. Well, why, why didn't they call it the bob pin then? I don't know. Well, think about it, Marsh. <laughs> this is my question. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Okay, what do you got? Well, that was a dynamite question, Marsh. And I've got a question about a dynamite tree. Oh, I could see you were going for transition Did you ever hear of a dynamite tree? No, I never did. What it is is the sandbox or possum wood tree. All right, have you ever heard of those? No. Okay, well, that's the tree that uh, basically it gets its name thanks to a little pumpkin-shaped fruit. Dynamite? Why would we call it dynamite? Why would we? Well, because that fruit explodes. Unlike most flowers and trees that let flying creatures pollinate them or they just simply drop their fruit to the ground, the sandbox trees' pumpkin-shaped fruits explode like grenades and they send seeds flying at almost bullet-like speeds. Imagine this. They launch seeds as far as 300 feet at speeds of 150 miles an hour. That's That's, why. That's hard to believe. That's why they got their name as the dynamite tree. It's found in tropical North and South America, and it's pretty nasty. Uh, Forever, fishermen have known about that. They've used its sap to poison fish they don't like. And the Carib Indians or Carib Indians Uh from the Caribbean, they poison the tips of their arrows with its sap. So this dynamite tree is really dynamite if you want to kill people or endanger somebody by spitting out you know, shooting out seeds like crazy. Huh. Okay. Okay. Where do you think the term paying through the nose comes from? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Paying through the nose. That, does it have something to do with the nose ring or something like that? Uh, no. It's a, it's, you'll find this fascinating. And I dis- will. And disgusting. Dynamite. Okay. <laughs> According to the Big Book of Answers, in Northern Ireland during the 9th century, the British introduced a harsh poll tax uh, of one ounce of gold per year on all Irish households. So everybody had to fork up an ounce of gold every year. It was nicknamed the nose tax because if a person didn't pay, they had their nose slit by the kindly tax official. Oh, dear. This cruel but very effective procedure oh, yeah. gave rise to the expression paying through the nose, meaning if unreasonable payments aren't made, there will be dire consequences. Oh, gosh, that's <laughs> horrible. Yes, it is. Yes. Boy, the British and the Irish, they really know how to hurt people, don't they? <laughs> My goodness. Indeed, they do. All right, I think it's time for a break. Alrighty. You've been listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We'll return in just a moment. 
Okay, we're back with The Off-Ramp. I'm Bob. I'm Marsha. And we're the Smiths. And I've got a little bit of information on some things that are changing as a result of our past year of COVID and yeah. everything. You know what? One of the most innovative new startups in the real estate industry. What do you think it is? A, uh, it's a startup within the real estate industry? There are numerous startups within the real estate industry. Okay. Uh, I don't know. No. Well, they take video of everything, but they've been doing that for years. No, these are startups for a specific type of real estate. Oh, no, I don't know. Okay, now we all know that there are big buildings, large buildings in the cities that uh, have been vacated by many of their employees, but there's also a lot of suburban retail stores that have gone out of business, retail chains. Yeah. So now there are new startups that they know that people like working from home, but they think people may want to get out of the house. <laughs> Maybe go to an office nearby. Uh-huh. So real estate companies are transforming some suburban residences and retail space into offices or you could rent it by the day or the hour or whatever, almost like the kind of stuff you have in cities now, but having it in suburbs. You know, there were a lot of branch banks and places oh. like that closing. Well, turn yeah. them into offices. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Let me do a couple quick ones here. Okay. What is the world's deepest lake, Bob? <laughs> mm, the world's deepest. I always think of Crater Lake. I think that's the deepest in America. It is in America, yeah. But in the world, okay. the world's deepest lake is in Russia, Lake Baikal, B-A-I-K-A-L, in Siberia. Wow. It's 5,315 feet deep. That's more than twice as deep as Crater Lake. Oh, it is. It's also the world's largest freshwater lake and 25 million years old. Holy cow. So it's the oldest lake in the world. 25 million according, years old. And that's according to the best of life science. Hmm. Okay, yes, I think you're right. I think Crater Lake's only a, maybe Cup. a couple thousand feet deep or uh -huh. something. Right. And that's, a, that's in a volcano crater is what that is, Crater Lake. It's an extinct yeah. volcano. Right. Okay, another nature question since you're on nature. Mm -hmm. Did you know that in nature there actually is a burning bush? No, that's in the Bible. Well, we Moses have one on the front lawn, Bob. That's what it's called. Well, is it, it a Dictamus albus? Yes. That's my question. A European perennial? I believe so. Oh, it turns bright red. It turns bright red every fall, and it's called a burning bush. It's also considered kind of a, a overtaker of landscapes, but I like it. Well, this bush, the Dictamus albus, which is a European perennial, emits an aromatic vapor that's flammable. It's oh, actually flammable. It must be a different burning bush. And when ignited, it actually envelops the leaves and petals of the plant in a flash of flame, but it doesn't harm the plant. Really? Yeah. No. Okay, ours doesn't do that. Well, we should get one. <laughs> that would be quite the neighborhood sensation, wouldn't it? Oh, the Smith's bush is on fire again. Oh, there. Oh, it's okay now. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm just going to ask a quick question, Bob. How big was the biggest snowflake ever measured? Hmm. The biggest snowflake ever measured. Wow, because they're really tiny. Yeah. I would say a half an inch across. 15 inches. What? Yeah, I know. I, it came down in Fort Keogh, Montana, K-E-O-U-G-H, Keogh, uh, in 1887. Jeez. That's now, a, how do we know this is true? Is it, there a photograph <laughs> of it? Of course not. <laughs> is there a drawing of it? 15, well, somebody, uh, 15 inches across. Just... Uh, Think about that. You got another question? Okay, Marcia, this is a automotive question, okay? <laughs> We're going to cover all the bases. How did the Mack truck get its Bulldog trademark? Oh, 
the Mack truck. Oh, well. And it came during a war. Huh. I don't know. It was from World War I Doughboy soldiers. The Mack brothers started out making electric cars and buses, but by 1905 they were turning out custom-built trucks, and the truck's blunt, snub-nosed hood made it look like something like a bulldog. At least that's what American Doughboys thought in the First World War, and they began calling Mack trucks bulldogs. And the company picked up on that, and after oh, the war, and put it they, on. yeah, registered the bulldog as a corporate uh, trademark. And the phrase "built like a Mack truck" entered the language after that war too, uh. as a tribute to the heavy abuse those wartime vehicles took. Ah, that was a good uh, selection of a mascot or a logo, rather. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, how many ways do you think there are to make change for a dollar, Bob? Oh dear, here we go again. According One of those things. to the Mathematical Association of America. Oh, you've got a good source there. Okay, how many different ways to make change? Okay, I'd say a hundred because you got a hundred pennies. Uh huh. You got two twenty-five cent pieces or four twenty-five Let's cent not pieces. Let's go through That's them four. all, Bob. Just you take got a g- 50, <laughs> two fifty cent pieces. All right, I'll give you Wait a the minute. answer. I'd say a hundred and six. Yeah, 106. <laughs> Not even close. Oh. 292 ways. Actually, 293 if you count exchanging a dollar bill for a silver dollar. So there are that many mathematical. I didn't think of that. <laughs> there are that many mathematical possibilities of making change for Holy a dollar. Holy cow. That's hard to think uh, You'd have to, to show me how that works. Well, let's sit down after supper and try all the 292 ways. Won't that be fun? <laughs> you got me out of my story on real estate. I wanted to tell you another thing. What, you know, a lot of the malls in the big uh, uh, suburbs are empty right now, or they have big uh-huh. anchor tenants empty. Uh-huh. So now they're starting to rent space for schools to charter schools, because charter oh, the, schools yes. always have to look oh, for their own yes. spaces. Oh, that's an excellent idea. Isn't it? i just thinking as you said that Anchored tenants now has a new meaning, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, oh, my God, you anchored our <laughs> yeah, building. Yeah, this kind of brought us down. Yeah, okay. the, uh, the Gem Prep Pocatello Charter School in Chubuck, Idaho, are attending classes in a former Sears department store, okay. for example. I'm a big fan of... Reuse. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. excellent. Good. Okay. What is the only United States state with a Spanish motto, Bob. Well, I would say it's probably one of the border states like Texas or Arizona or New Mexico or California, but we know some of those aren't because we know the mottos of some of those are in English, so I don't know the answer. Well, I thought the same thing, but we were wrong. It's Montana. Really? Yeah. A state that borders Canada has a Spanish motto? And it's oro y plate, which in Spanish for gold and silver, which were in abundance in the state during the mid-1800s. Well, that's true. Yeah, Yeah. they had But they have that. That's their motto, and it's it's Spanish. I had no idea. No, that's the only one. I wouldn't have expected that. Well, now you can expect it. Okay. All right. (laughs) I think this will come as welcome news to some people. Even Zoom's CEO says he has Zoom fatigue from too many video meetings. Oh, really? Oh, dear. One day last year, he said he had 19 Zoom meetings in a row. Oh, Lord. And he says, I don't do that anymore. He tries to not have two or three in a row. He he says that's just too hard for anybody to be watching screens. And, you know, it's his business. So that's kind of interesting. Oh, it is. Okay, Marcia, I have a question. I was going to ask you this a couple weeks ago. Uh Uh-huh. It was slurred for centuries as a woman's game. So what is it? What was slurred for centuries as a woman's game? Why would it be slurred? Because people thought women couldn't uh, play the other game. It was too hard for them. So they went to the simplified version. Oh, well, that makes sense. Okay. (laughs) 
chess. That's exactly right. Yeah. That wasn't Who plays so, chess in this family? You do. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that shows the women know how to play chess. And Doesn't... I like checkers better. And the, the game was checkers. Checkers was slurred. During the Middle Ages, it was called chess for ladies because it was <laughs> thought women couldn't handle the intellectual challenge of chess. Oh, they called checkers chess for ladies? Yes. Oh, give me a break. In fact, the oh, name for geez. chess oh. in French, German, Italian, Spanish, and Arabic all loosely can be translated game for the ladies. Oh my God. Americans are the only nationality to refer to the game by the pattern laid out on the board, checkers. Well, go US. Yes. All right. Without this hand digit, Bob, Mm -hmm. you would lose 50% of your hand strength. Which digit is it? I think it's the thumb, the opposable thumb. Yeah. Okay. No. No? It's the opposite. Your pinky. Yep. Not my index finger. No. According to New York Times, that's because it aids the ring finger by providing the power to grip or make a fist. So it gives you the power. But with the middle and index finger and thumb, they are all best for pinching and grabbing. But the strength lies in the pinky, which aids the ring finger. So we're talking about the smallest finger on your hand. If you didn't have that, what? You would lose 50% of your strength. That is amazing. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, New York Times says it's true. I love things like that where you think of something that you think of as small and weak, but see how powerful it is. You'd lose 50% of your strength of your hand if you didn't have that little finger there. That's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, Marcia, what ancient toy inspired modern navigational devices used on planes and ships? This is another situation where an inventor was looking at... Is it the gyroscope? That's right. What's the toy, though? When I was... They had a gyroscope toy. Which was like what? Akin to, similar to, something spinning. (laughs) Top. Oh, did did I give you enough clues? (laughs) Yes. Sure. That's right. That's right. A spinning top. While he was watching a spinning top belonging to his children, the inventor Elmer Ambrose Sperry was asked by his kids why the top stood up when it spun around. And that gave him the germ for an idea that led to all those stabilization devices, the the modern, the gyroscopes, the automatic pilot for planes. It certainly makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder when tops came about. Well, they found Probably those in forever. ancient tombs. Yeah. You know, they've been around forever. Probably the pharaohs played with them. But he he and his son invented all the things that are still used today in planes and boats. Like if you're in a plane and it's foggy or in your, you're in the clouds, you don't know where the horizon is. Well, they have all these stabilizers and most of these deal with gyroscopes and that they can actually create on the screen where the horizon is. And it's prevented many people from dying, of course. Wow. Okay. I have a my last question. It's a multiple choice for you, Robert. How many Earths could fit in the sun? A, 5, B, 2,500, or C, 1.3 million? I believe it's 1.3 million. And you believe correctly. Now, that just shows you. You think about that. All these models when we've been kids, you know, here's the Earth, and here's Venus, and here's the sun. Well, the sun would be the Empire State Building, and your Earth is a marble. That's amazing. Check this. The sun holds up to 99.8% of our solar system's mass. Wow. 99.8. The sun is 4.603 billion years old, 
and will reach its maximum size in 7.6 billion years, which is bad news for us because it will burn 3,000 times brighter. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I think it's bad news for us because we won't be around to that, see that. That's good. But think about the lotion you need to put on your body with that. <laughs> Speaking of uh, heat, okay, uh-huh. and light, I've got this my final question. You know, many of us still love those old-fashioned incandescent light bulbs. Yes. You know, this Thomas Edison invented them. It was good for 100 years. Why change, right? Why change? Okay, so what's wrong with the incandescent light bulb? And it relates to size and mass and all of that. Well, you mean the ones that we used before the squigglies? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were uh, tremendously wasteful and they got hot as hell. Well, that's it. They were more heat than light. I still like the light of them, and fortunately, the new LEDs and all, they're starting to mimic that light. Oh, they are, I know. But 96% of the energy released by a conventional incandescent light bulb, 96% is heat. Only 4% of the energy is converted to light. I had no idea. Now that they figured out how to soften that and not make it look like a scorching sun in your living room. (laughs) By contrast, an LED light has an energy efficiency of 80 to 90%. So 80 to 90% of the energy is converted to light while only 20% is lost as heat. heat. Yeah, hardly anything. Well, very interesting. Okay. I'll finish with a quote from Susan Bissonette. Okay. An optimist is the human personification of spring. That's very nice. Mm -hmm. Very thoughtful. (laughs) We should uh, remind everybody that if you would like to submit a question to our show, you can by going to our website, theofframp.show, and going to... Contact us. And there you can leave the question, the answer, and who you want the answer to be given by. Who do you want to stomp with that question of yours? (laughs) Okay, and leave your name and where you're from. Thank you. Okay, and that's it. See you next week. Okay, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.